Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Very happy to be welcoming as my special guest this week, a man who has had a tremendous career as a trainer. 31 years he started young, but he's handled some of the best horses in Europe in that time. Most notably, the brilliant talent that was Moja and what a wonderful racing career he had and what a legacy he left. But there was so much more to the life and training career of John Hammond and I think he surprised an awful lot of people by bringing the curtain down on it and he's going to saddle his final runner in a few weeks. John, good morning and thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Trainers don't retire, do they? They just keep going on and on and on. Yeah, retire's a, retire's a big word. I'm stopping training. I'm not retiring. I'm going yeah. to be doing some other stuff. But um, yes, you know, I mean, I think some, some die in harness, some kind of fizzle out and some take a view and stop and do other things. And you're probably always a, a man who's taken a view, aren't you, insofar as you've always been proactive rather than reactive to a situation? Listen, I've been very lucky. It's been great. I've had a fantastic time. I've had some great horses. I don't think I ever intended to do it forever. Um, you know, cliche it may be, but it is a seven-day-a-week job. And uh, life flies by us all, so there's other stuff to do, hopefully. What's been the most enjoyable part of, of training racehorses? What have you enjoyed the most? Without doubt, the good horses. You know, it's magic when you've got a good horse, and it's, it's, um, it's fantastic. And you were lucky enough to get good horses quite early on. Just tell us a little bit about how training came to you, if you like. I spent a lot of my childhood in Ireland, so, you know, I was riding ponies, going hunting, going racing in my early teens and um, got hooked on it pretty early on really. But did you think then, yeah, this is what I want to do, did you think you wanted to be a trainer? I wasn't sure, I was always terrified to be honest with you, the idea of training and uh, I always thought one day I could give it a go and see and if it didn't work, you know, I'd stop and do something else but uh, in the end I sort of, uh, um, having spent a couple of years with Andre, I took the plunge and off I went. Two years with Andre Fab must have been incredibly instructive. I say it must have been. Was it terribly instructive? It was. He was fantastic. He was very open. Um, you know, we'd go racing together and we big discussions in his car and uh, he was my mentor and um, we're friends now, which has been great. Um, so, yeah, no, he was a big factor. Very hard sometimes to pin down what makes these all-time greats so great. But you'd be better positioned than most people to answer that question as regards Andre Farb. It's a good question. I mean, I've always said about Andre that if he wasn't training horses, he'd be running a multinational company. He's a highly intelligent man, um, extremely well organized. Um, you know, obviously got great insight with horses, that goes without saying. Um, and it's, you know, it's always been a big pleasure to watch how he does things. We don't know that much about him as a as a person because for all that he's very charming to us in the British media, his relationship with the French media is not 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 always been so good. Is he by nature quite a private person? Yeah, he he, he probably is. But um, if you sat next to Andre at dinner, you'd have a fascinating time, and yeah. you might not even talk about horses. He's got a very great breadth of knowledge on history, politics, anything. You know, he's a, he's a very very interesting man. Given your, your interest and given that you said that, that training's a, a seven day a week job and you can't, really, you can't really escape it, is that one of the driving forces for 
sort of shifting your emphasis a little bit, that you just don't want to give your whole life to this? Yes, probably. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's a job of great passion and it's fascinating. And I always say that I was very, you know, I never woke up on Monday morning wishing it was Friday afternoon and a lot of people do jobs that, that uh, make them think like that. So it's, um, it's been great, but the, as you know, there are ups and downs, there are magical yeah. moments, there are big disappointments. Um, and, you know, maybe towards the end I've become a bit too conservative in the way I trained horses, so you've got to acknowledge your, your faults, I think. So you, do you think you became more conservative as, as time went on? Yes, definitely, yeah. yeah. So just, just tell me how. Well, I think, you, you know, early on in my career it was probably a, a, a strength to be patient with the good horses, um, but the good horses are relatively far, few and far between, and I think probably in the end I became too conservative with the, with the average horses, and that's, that's not a good thing. And I suppose, because you started pretty young, didn't you? 24, 25 when you... Yes, I think so, yeah. yeah. It's, been a, it's been a very quick 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> are we, uh, by nature, at that age, are you quite buccaneering? I think everybody is. I think you're... I think most people are, are bigger risk-takers when they're young. Um, and uh, certainly I was, yeah. Was it fun in the early days? It was great. That was great. I mean, it was, a, you know, as I say, it was... You know, never Monday to Friday. It was there was always action, always things going on, and I was very fortunate to have some nice horses. And um, never ever bored. Why France? It was just the way it panned out. I went over for a job with Andre initially. I was only going to stay a year, and enjoyed it, stayed a second year, and then you know, I just. We were going racing together one day, and he said, what are your plans? Which was probably a polite way of saying your time's up. <laughs> and I said, well, I thought I'd give it a go in France. And um, funnily enough, in France, it was easier to start with a handful of horses than in England, I think. You know, you could just rent a few boxes and off you went. And so it was the licensing process was easier and just easier to get yourself up and you running? You didn't have to have a whole yard. I just rented some boxes and um, bought some saddles and off you went, yeah. And success came quite quickly. You, you trained for the Wildensteins very early on, didn't you? Yeah, that was that was pretty short, pretty short <laughs> you're, span. You're, uh, you're not you're not at an exclusive club there. Uh, it's, that was in my second year, and uh, I sort of inherited forty horses all of a sudden. So it was a um, big change. And then uh, then I got sacked in September. So uh, um, yeah, that was that was a bit of a blow early on. Why did you get sacked? Uh, not enough results. And Fortunately, my, I had horses from my other owners that were winning races, so uh, otherwise I'd have been sunk. And did you know that this was likely to be a fairly short-term arrangement, given what you've you'd seen? Not really. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure I made some mistakes with the horses, but looking back, they just weren't much good, you know. And um, as I say, fortunately, I had my other owners and my other horses that were running and winning races, so that saved me. Uh, were you good at rolling with the punches? Because you get dealt a few blows early on. Just kind of carry on, don't you? I think everybody does, really. And what was the first really talented horse that you had through your hands? Uh, Suave Dancer, probably, yeah. And he, of course, won the, won the arc for you. Mm. Uh, and how soon did you know that you had something special on your hands? Probably, he just ran once or two, finished fourth, promising run. 
and then he won his maiden by eight lengths at three first time out. Uh, first first out at three, I think, I think it was probably in April. So he looked pretty good then. Um, but as with all these horses, they've got to keep moving up a step and um, you can you can win your maiden easily and some go on, some don't. What sort of a trainer have you been? Would you describe yourself as a, a hands-on trainer? Are you, a, are, you, are you very applied to, to taking each horse gradually through their through their learning curve? Yes, I mean, I always liked... Uh, I was pretty rubbish at training early two-year-olds, um, and I always liked horses that progressed and progressed and progressed. And uh, I loved horses with a turn of foot. Uh, when you say you were rubbish at training early two-year-olds, did you try and train early two-year-olds or not? Well, I did. There was a point in time when I had a couple of early two-year-old winners, but um, to be fair, it's not as big a deal in France as it is here. The racing is probably geared more towards... Um, two-year-olds that'll run a bit further, and uh, three-year-olds and four-year-olds. So, did the setup in France suit you, personality-wise? I think so. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Do you think that if you trained in England, you would have had the same level of success? Who knows? It, it all comes down with having the good horses, and maybe being English in France, I was, you know, maybe easier to attract certain owners. I don't know. Mm being slightly the odd one out. Um, yeah, it all comes down to the good horses. I mean, almost certainly I wouldn't have had those, the good horses that I had, I wouldn't have had them in England, no, probably not. So tell me about uh, when you first clapped eyes on Morgia. He was always a really good looking horse. And um, I trained his half-brother for Jimmy Goldsmith. And I remember when he, the half-brother won first time out at two. So I called him and, you know, easy call. Good news. So I said, yeah, he's, you know, won well, well and he'd probably be a nice listed horse next year. And he was on the phone. He said, don't worry about him. I'm watching his younger brother walk in from the paddock. He was actually at the property of Morgia at the time. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is the most amazing horse. So I know people say that about young horses, but he really, he kind of meant it. Sadly, he never got to see the horse uh, run. So... Um, and then two years later he came, I think he was a foal when probably he said that, so then he came into training back end as a yearling, yeah. He was a, a very striking horse, as you say, to look at, but even more striking to, to watch run. Did he exhibit <clears throat> all his talent to you pretty early doors? Yes, he, you know, he always looked like a nice horse. He won his maiden first time out. But as I said, they've, all, they've got to keep moving up, moving up, and they've got to be lucky, they've got to stay free from injury in there heads have to stay on the right way and um, so yeah no, he just kept improving really. He had some charisma didn't he? He did no he was a cool horse you know he was a he had personality and uh, he had fantastic acceleration that was probably his big plus. Uh, when when he really started to to turn heads and <clears throat> he won the, the jockey club and the, and the Irish derby um, how much pressure did you feel or were you able to enjoy it? Um, I'm not sure you enjoy it as much at the time as you should do. Mm -hmm. You kind of live from day to day, and it's interesting hearing Nicky Henderson there, you know, his whole day today is going to be thinking about that splinter in Bouvier's foot. Yeah. So, um, uh, and when you've got a, lucky enough to have a good horse, a small problem's a big problem, obviously. 
And was there a was there a day for you that that stood out more than any other in in his career that you that you were able to really really enjoy? Yeah, I mean, obviously the Ark and the and the King George. Um, King George was a funny yeah. day because he got he got a bit difficult about going into the paddock and he was at the old Ascot and we saddled him and he was walking around and uh, he wouldn't go in, just would not go in. Leader, everything, trying everything, wouldn't go in. And Didier, my head man at the time, who's retired now, he was leading him around and he had a spanking suit on him, polished shoes, tie. And uh, I said, right, next time round, and we legged him up and he rode him in, in his suit and tie and smart shoes, no helmet. <laughs> Might be one of my probably only regrets, nobody took the photo. It would have been super. Uh, you rode him from the pre-parade into yeah, the yeah, paddock? Yeah, just that was the only way you go in. Rode him in in his suit and tie. And then in the race, he, uh, he was great. How, how much pleasure do you take in the legacy that the horse has left? That's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm, the breeding thing fascinates me. I love it. And um, it, was, it was great to see him become a good stallion, yeah. And a really good sire of derby horses. I think four individual derby winners. And you trained a, a, a good horse by him as well, Walk in the Park, who, who finished second. Yes, so he, was, he, was, he was a decent horse. Yeah. I wouldn't say he was a good horse, but he was decent. But he, um, Nearly got the job done. Um, is that something you look back on and think you you notably missed out on uh, a win in the Derby at Epsom? Is that something, given that your background and your English upbringing, that you? Well, I only ever had one runner in it, and that was walking the park. Yeah. Who was second? And when Mojo was three, we did actually pay whatever it is, ten grand in March, to stick him in the Derby, and we were going to run him in the Derby, and he just. I just got the feeling it wasn't the right race for him at the time. Um, he was just a bit too wired. And the owners were incredibly good. I said, no, let's not go to Epsom, let's run him in Shanti. Um, on the form book, he'd have, he'd have beaten Oath. Would he have beaten him on the day? I'm not sure. I think he'd have beaten Oath. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think he'd yeah. have beaten him, but I think he, his walk in the park was never the same again. I mean, it does, the derby does get to horses and it, it does fry a few of them. So. Funnily enough, I have no regrets about that. How, just listening to you talk about horses and listening to you talk about training, all trainers would say that they, they put the horses first, but how, how driven were you by personal ambition during your career? I think probably more of fear of failure than personal ambition. And is, is that something that's been with you throughout? Is that, does, is, is that part of your makeup? I think so. Um, you know, I was never ambitious to the point. I never wanted to train 200 horses and be champion trainer. On, um, I never, I never thought that. I, you know, I was when I started training. I hoped I'd have some good horses and win some good races, and um, that was that was my ambition, really. And where where were you happiest? Were you happiest at the races? Were you happiest at home? Were you happiest watching the horses work? Where, where, what sort of what sort of made you think? Yeah, this is. I, I love the it. nuts and bolts of it, the training of the horses in the morning. You know, it's it's um, um, as I said, it's never boring. It's fascinating. And what about the? It, 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 I'm always interested <clears throat> people who train horses because they're essentially your job is is 
to train horses. It's to get these horses to, to run faster than, than someone else's horses. Yet there's so many more aspects to it that you're expected to do well. You're expected to be a, a showman and an entertainer and a, a, sometimes a party goer or whatever. Did, did all that, do you find that side of it harder? I was never a great party goer. Um, but uh, yes, I think you know, it is, you are running a business. You're responsible for your staff. You've got responsibilities towards your owners. Um, and I think now it's interesting what's going on in Australia. A lot of people are teaming up and training mm. together. And I think that'll happen here. Because with all year round racing, Sunday racing, um, people with big strings of horses, it's, it's, it's probably more than enough for one person, I think. And you've got quite involved in in Australian racing with with OCI Racing, to whom you you you, you uh, have an attachment. Yeah. And you're working in an advisory capacity with them. Do you look on their model as the sort of ideal model of uh, of horse racing? Um, it's very interesting. It was interesting hearing Chris Cook earlier on going on and uh, speak about syndicates here and OTI run uh, sort of high end upmarket partnerships. They've got about 100 horses in training in Australia, 20 in Europe. Um, it's incredibly well run, and uh, a lot of owners in, in Australia, you know, a lot of their owners are people who could own five or ten horses themselves, mm -hmm. but they have more fun having 10% of 30 horses or something. Um, so it's not just somebody having 500 quid shares, um, and it works really well there, and it'll be interesting to see if, you know, if it could work a bit here too. Well, obviously there are syndicates, very successful syndicates here in uh, in Europe too. How would you assess the health of racing in France at the moment? It's difficult. Betting turnover is going down. Um, obviously attendances on the racetrack are not great. Um, it'll be interesting to see the next few years. Um, going to be a little bit tough I think. And why do you think that is? Is it just a question of popularity? Or? Yes, I think probably the average age of the person who bets on horse racing has gone up. Uh, young people are less interested in it. They've got other things to do. A um, lot more betting now on football, tennis, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the great strengths about English racing is that, that certainly the big meetings, there's this great buzz and a lot of young people go racing. They enjoy getting dressed up, going racing, having a drink, having a bet, following the horses. And that's as an outsider looking, I think that's a big strength that English racing has. Um, when you when you come back to England, do you do you enjoy the sport here? Yes, I do. You know, I mean, I I like racing everywhere. You know, I like racing in Australia, racing in America, racing here. Um, it's difficult when you go to Ascot or Goodwood, New York. It's, if you're into horses and racing, it's difficult not to enjoy it. And did you enjoy travelling your horses abroad when you when you were training? I mean, you you were. A, a, Pioneering, really. I mean, you won the Laurel Futurity in 1990. Yes, we ran horses more in America then. Uh, uh, the prize money was very good. It's probably gone down a fair bit. Uh, it was cheaper to fly horses over there. Um, but at that time, there wasn't... Was there Hong Kong? Um, yeah, there might have just been Hong Kong, but there wasn't Dubai and there, wasn't, there weren't all the other international races. Um, but no, that, that, that was fun. So 
you're working a little for for OTI, as I said, and you've still got your yard in in, in France. Mm. And when you when is your last runner going to be? Probably 16th of December. And have you have you lined one up to go out with a bang, or is that not really John Hammond style? I'd, you know, obviously it would be nice if it wins, but who, who knows? Uh, it's a filly I've always liked. She's going to go. She's going to move to Hiru Shimitsu, who's taking over part yeah. of my yard and he'll train her and the plan is to run her in Dubai in, in February. And do you see yourself staying in France now for... Yes, certainly for the, you know, staying where I am and I enjoy French racing too and it's fun and obviously I know a little bit about what's going on and um, so we'll carry on in that vein. Um, you don't see yourself ever, ever coming back to England? Maybe one day, who, who knows, you know. Uh, uh, everybody's always said that over the years, but it's it's uh, it's two hours away. You know, from Shanti, you could get from Shanti to the centre of London probably as quick as you can get from York to the centre of London. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, um, yeah, uh, I, I don't know. Don't we know make we, we make too big a deal of it, probably. I think we? so. Yeah. Um, in terms of your your career as a whole, you look back on as you say, thirty one years. It's a it's a, it's a decent, it's a decent chunk of time. Doesn't feel like it. Does it not? No, really doesn't. It's absolutely whizzed by. And other than the, other than the the obvious highs of of Suave Dancer and and Manger, has, has there been a, has there been a a moment of real satisfaction that perhaps has escaped the notice of the rest of us, but is particularly, um, particularly important to you? I think all winners give you satisfaction. All winners give you a buzz, and sometimes when you've got some very bad horses and you manage to win a race with them, that, that gives you pleasure. And uh, I actually wrote a thing in a in for the racing notebook recently about a horse I had early on in my career who uh, was owned by a lovely guy who had just ten grand to spend, and that had to cover absolutely everything. And so I bought a cheap horse in England, and then of course found out it was cheap because it was pretty unsound. And anyway, cut a long story short, he ran a couple of times, didn't run very well, and then we put him in claiming races and he ran badly again, and uh, so we were really struggling, so I ran him in this absolutely shocking claiming race at St. Clou. Um, and Patrick Lucas, the owner, flew over to watch this horse run, and I think we were about £9,800 gone by then, so it was our last roll of the dice. And uh, he said, what are our chances? And I said, well, you know, for apprentices who haven't ridden five winners and our fellows ridden four, so we got the star on board and this is a race, absolutely anything could happen. And I think it was a mile and a quarter on the flat, three fell on the first bend, two fell on the last bend. Oh my God. He was 22 to one, he was the shortest prize horse to be left standing and he won <laughs> and got claimed. So that was, I mean, I'll, I'll remember that like winning a group one. And the, you know, the excitement and just um, you know, kind of getting out of jail and uh, the owner would, flown over to watch the horse run and it was it was it was fantastic how did you enjoy the owner engagement as a whole no I enjoyed that I've been very lucky I've had some great owners and um, you know by nature owners are often successful people in other areas of life and they're interesting people and it's it's um, no, it's been a big plus but that of course also presupposes that they're going to expect pretty high standards they can be pretty demanding do you know, I think most owners are pretty long-suffering. You know, owning racehorses, it's a sort of series of disappointments, really, isn't it? 
and I think most owners are great about it and they understand that horses aren't going to win all the time and uh, there are setbacks along the way and uh, um, I just I take my hat off to most of them. Any regrets or just happy to have done it? No, absolutely no regrets at all. No, I've had a, had a great, great, great time and been very lucky. And as I say, 30 years, it felt like it was 10 years. Um, so, um, so it's been good. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albastiet Cruel Dubai.